Well, good evening. Caleb is very gracious. The reason I take so long to do things is because it takes me long to do things. Uh, and so that's how that goes. But thank you for the introduction. Jackson, really blessed to see what you're doing. I remember when Jackson was in his, in his mama's womb. Uh, and so it's a long time and they're going away, but uh, good for them. All right. Turn with me, uh, if you will, to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look at a very familiar parable, Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. We'll read it and then pray, and then by God's grace, expound on it. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No lest there should be not enough for us and you, but you rather, uh, where am I? Did you, but, but you rather go, uh, go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need to hear your word, not from a man, but, Lord, from you through the power of your Spirit. And so we pray that you would open up our minds, help me to clearly declare, uh, Lord, what the Word says, help us to receive it, Lord, help us to believe it, and ultimately help us to live it, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Matthew 24, verse 3, the disciples asked Jesus two questions. They wanted to know, uh, when the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would be, uh, and what would be the sign of his coming uh, or the end of the world. And Jesus answered them by saying that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would happen in their generation. Uh, and he gives them signs or norms or patterns of things that would occur throughout all generations. And he tells them these things will intensify the closer we get to the end. But as uh, to the day and the hour of his return, he said no man can know that. It's not the Father's will that we do know that. Uh, but he wants us to be looking for and anticipating it. He wants us to be living in light of it, uh, which is why he wants us to watch and be ready. Uh, because he's coming at an hour, he says, that no man will expect. And to illustrate this, he, he uses people in the days of Noah, how they heard the gospel preached to them for 120 years. They saw the ark being built, uh, and Noah told them of the judgment to come and their need to turn from their sin and repent and uh, trust in the living God. Uh, yet they did not believe. 
So when the flood came, it took them all by surprise. See, they were going on about life as usual. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage with absolutely no care or concern about the judgment of their sin, which was to come. Then in verses 44 to 51, Jesus tells his disciples the parable of the two servants, the faithful and wise servant and the evil servant. And how when the master of the house went, uh, went away for a long time, the faithful and wise servant followed his master's orders, and he took care of his master's household. Uh, while the evil servant, uh, seeing that his master was away for a long time, beat the other servants and lived riotously. And when the master returned unexpectedly, the evil servant was destroyed. So Jesus has been telling them uh, that, that, that they don't know when he's going to return, but he is definitely returning and they need to be ready for it they need to be prepared for it uh, because to be unprepared is an evidence uh, that one not that they've never really followed him to begin with and now in chapter 25 he'll again warn them to be prepared for his coming with the parable of the ten virgins and it is important that we understand that the parable has a main point which we will find in verse 13 which says watch therefore for you neither know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. That's the main point. So not every detail or every aspect of the parable has a deep spiritual meaning. Right? They are there to help support the main idea for the most part. In fact, there are many unanswered parts of the parable, uh, and they don't really need to be answered. Uh, like, did the five foolish virgins actually buy more oil? Where was the, the bride? Why was the bridegroom so late? And so on. The point is, uh, they are not of extreme importance, as is the virgins being prepared to meet the bridegroom when he came and what that means. Well, with all of this in view, I want to look at this parable using a, a three-point outline. The difference between the virgins, the discussion between the virgins, and finally, the destiny of the virgins. And so let's look at verses 1 to 4. I'll read them again, the difference between the virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. All right. Now, before we begin looking into the differences between the virgins, I think it would be helpful to explain what a Jewish marriage custom looked like or what it was like. Uh, and, and a Jewish marriage actually took place in three stages. The first stage was the engagement. The engagement, which was an official contract uh, uh, between the two fathers uh, who, would, uh, who were giving their son to their daughter and the daughter to the son. The second stage was the betrothal, uh, which was an uh, official ceremony, like a, like a wedding ceremony in a sense, uh, in which the couple exchanged marriage vows, uh, and it, it legally bound them to each other as husband and wife. Uh, and, and the only way it could be broken uh, was either by death or divorce. And of course, Mary and Joseph were in this stage, as we read uh, in Matthew 1. Uh, now, now, during this betrothal period, which lasted about one year, the couple did not come together physically, nor did they live together. The groom lived with his family, the bride lived with her family, until stage three, which was the wedding feast or the banquet. And it would be a most festive occasion. And this celebration would last about a week. Uh, and it, it is what is described in this parable that we're looking at today. 
it was the stage three. Uh, you see, the custom was that the bridegroom uh, would the bridegroom would, would go uh, to the bride's home uh, where she was with her bridesmaids, uh, who were almost always unmarried women, which is why they are called virgins. Uh, and when the bridegroom and his groomsmen would get close to the bride's house, the bridesmaids would go out to meet him and his party with lit lamps in their hands. Uh, they, would go, uh, they would go to the, to the bride's house uh, and, uh, and, and, and collect the bride. Uh, and, and then the procession would joyfully walk to the bridegroom's house. What they were doing, they were singing along the way with, with lit lamps. Uh, and when they got to the bridegroom's house, the celebration would begin. Now, the ones who had the lamps uh, were the ones who were in the wedding party. Uh, and to be in the wedding party and not to have a lit lamp would really be a breach of protocol or etiquette. Uh, kind of like a bridesmaid today not wearing a dress that the other brides were wearing or having a corsage that the other ones had. Uh, and the reason uh, the virgins had lamps at all is because usually the bridegroom came at night and the banquet started at night. Now, now all of this was very common to the disciples. This story was very common to them. They knew it. They had seen it. They had participated in these festivities. Uh, so they thoroughly understood what he was saying about the wedding feast. Right, so then Jesus says to his disciples, the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who went out to meet the bridegroom. Uh, and, and the aspect of the kim, kingdom he's talking about is what the kingdom will be like when he comes back. Because this is the context of most of Matthew 24 and all of Matthew 25. Uh, and, and he says there are five foolish virgins and five wise virgins. Uh, and, and I don't think there's anything spiritually significant about the number 10 uh, or the number 5 here. The point is, not the number of them, but that some were wise and some were foolish. And all 10 of them had a lamp. Uh, and you need to know that the word lamp actually means a torch. Uh, and what it was was a long stick that had a wire netting around the top of it uh, and with a coarse rag wrapped around that netting and, and they would soak the rag with oil uh, and then light it, and it would burn for a while. Uh, and what makes the wise virgins wise is that they took this small flask of oil with them uh, to pour it on the rag. And what makes the foolish virgins foolish, they didn't take one. They didn't have any extra oil. And again, this is a very simple, common slice-of-life scene for the disciples. So they get all of this. All right? And so we see the difference between the virgins. Now, the discussion, verses 5 to 9. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Uh, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No, uh, lest there should not be enough for us and you but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Now we read that the bridegroom was delayed and why he was delayed, we don't know, he just is. Uh, and because he is delayed, all of the virgins get tired and they all fall asleep. And then at midnight, they hear a cry that the bridegroom is coming and they go out to meet him. So they all jump up, get their lamps, try to light them and start to go out to meet him. And the foolish virgins realize their lamps go out uh, because they have no oil to pour on the rag. Uh, 
Uh, it seems they try to light the rag without the oil, but it quickly gets snuffed out because verse 8 says, you know, uh, uh, for our lamps are going out. Uh, so the lamps can't stay lit because they have no oil on them. Uh, and the foolish virgins see their predicament, uh, and they say to the wise virgins, virgins, give us some of your oil. Uh, and the wise say, no dice. Uh, we can't give you any of our oil because if, if we do, there won't be enough for us and for you. Uh, so there's no way that both of our lamps could stay lit. So we're not going to give you some. Go find some yourself. Now, now, now that's the story of the parable. And now let's see what the people and the things in the parable represent. Uh, the ten virgins... Uh, in which this whole parable centers around, represents the visible church. Right? All the church, all the visible church. All right? Or all of those who claim to believe in Christ. They are those who would call themselves Christians, uh, and almost all of them would be in a church. The five wise virgins represent those who are truly born again. They know God, and they are known by God, because they have been saved by him. They are regenerated redeemed, and are sincerely the children of God. Uh, and the five fo foolish virgins, well, they are those that claim to be Christians and are not. They have most likely been baptized, members of a local church, they take the Lord's Supper, they participate in church services, they play instruments, they are elders, deacons, trustees, they are evangelists, they serve on church committees. They listen to sermons and Christian music. They give to the church. They vote at business meetings. They come to Wednesday night services. They put Bible verses in their houses. They own probably more than one Bible, uh, and with some of them having their initials etched into them, and so on. So they like Christianity. They say and they do Christian things, but they have never truly been born again. And because of what they do and how they live, they have deceived themselves into thinking that they're a Christian. And this is what Jesus taught about in Matthew 13 concerning the wheat and the tares, right? That there's the real, uh, that there's the real, the one that, that is real, and there's the one that looks real but isn't real. And they're all in the church. Uh, and this is what Jesus also said concerning about the seed in Matthew 13 that hit hit the stony ground and hit the thorny ground. They look real, they sound real, but then over time, either the word comes against them and they, 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 they bail out, or it just gets choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And so what he is saying and warning men about is that the church is filled with those who think they're believers and are not. Uh, and the thing about the ten virgins or the people in the church is that outwardly, they, they look and seem the same. I mean, all ten virgins were bridesmaids. All were gathered at the bride's house waiting for the bridegroom. All fell asleep. All brought their lamps. All heard the cry that the bridegroom was approaching. And all started to go out to meet him. But it is not until they have to light their lamps up that it becomes evident that they're not alike. When Jesus told his apostles at the Last Supper that one of them would betray him, nobody, none of the 11 suspected it was Judas, which is why they all said, is it I, is it I, is it I? Well, what Jesus is saying is that there are multitudes sitting in churches 
who think all is well and think that they're in his kingdom, but it will become evident when he comes again that they might not really be at all. You see, these professors have, have never come to, a, to sense the sinfulness of their sin and the high offense that their sin is before God. And they have never truly repented of their sins. They, had, they, they never had a, a genuine concern for the glory of God in their lives. And they never had a zeal and a fervor for Christ. There was no heartfelt passion for him. Oh, they liked him and they believed who he was and they believed in, in, in his gospel, but they were never washed in his blood. They were never clothed in his righteousness. They had a lifeless, non-committed faith, which really was no faith at all. And they absolutely convinced themselves that they were his and in his kingdom. They expected eternal life with Christ without ever living for him here. They expected to dwell with him in glory without ever forsaking all in this life for his glory. And they believed that they entered into the kingdom and will win the crown, yet they never knew the cross or carried theirs while they were here. They think that changes they made in their life or getting their act together or being morally upright equated to eternal life. So they may have a knowledge of the Bible, but they don't really know the God of the Bible. Nor do they really know their own hearts or know the sinfulness of the world that they live in. Right? They're like the Jews whom, whom God brought out of the bondage of Egypt, but because of their unbelief, many of them perished in the wilderness. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 10. And in verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud, and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But, but, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They all did the same things, like the virgins, the ten virgins. Like they all did the same stuff. But in the end, some of them, God was not well pleased at all. And then you notice that they, they, they experienced tons of God's blessings, yet they didn't believe in him, and thus he wasn't pleased with them, and so they died in the wilderness. So these are people who hear the word of God, but they don't do the word of God from the heart. These are ones who Jesus says built their house on sand and not on rock. Matthew 7, 26 and 27, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. It was its fall. Foolish, he says. Luke 13, 23. One of his disciples asks him, Jesus, are there few who are saved? Just a few, Jesus? Here's his answer. He said, strive. The word in Greek is, means agonize. 
Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Many. So the point is, it is possible to be associated with the things of Christ, even immersed in them, and yet in the end, be lost. Scary stuff, right? But that's why we have the parable. Now, the bridegroom, of course, represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus called himself the bridegroom in Matthew 9, 15. John the Baptist called him the bridegroom in John 3, 29. Uh, and the delay of the bridegroom is the period between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And the lamps represent a profession of faith, which is why all ten versions had one. The oil, though, represents the power of the profession, and that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the fuel which brings one to life and which keeps one alive. And without the Holy Spirit, you're a false convert. Doesn't make a difference what we say. But with the Holy Spirit, one is given a new heart, and one is made a new creation in Christ. Uh, and it is the ministry of the Spirit to make one alive in Christ, to regenerate them, to make them born again. Titus 3.5 says that it is through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit that, that we were saved. Jesus said in John 6.33, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And in Romans 8.9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to Christ. So no spirit, no life. And there is but one way to get the Holy Spirit, and that is from God. It's a free gift from God. And Jesus sent him to indwell all of his elect. And no spiritual grace is given apart from the Spirit of God. And the evidence that one has the Spirit living in them is that they bear the fruit of the Spirit. That they grow in it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Self-control. Right? And those things are now a reality in a believer's life. All of those things are a reality in a believer's life. Well, not that we've aced them, but we're growing in them. We're growing in them. So are the virtues of the Beatitudes. Those are realities, new characteristics, if you will, of the Christian life. Poor in spirit, mourning over sin, meekness, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, and on and on. Those are realities now that weren't, weren't there before. And that's because, again, the work of the Spirit. So no person can live the spiritual life, a life of holiness, a life of faith, without the Spirit of God in them. It would be like trying to drive a car with no gas. Or trying to run a computer without a battery or electricity. See, the Holy Spirit gives the power that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life and enables us to live for Christ. We can't do it without him. And the foolish virgins didn't have any power or they had no oil or they didn't possess the Holy Spirit. Right? So they weren't really saved. They weren't really saved. Now notice that they asked the wives' virgins uh, to give them some of their oil. And they said, we can't do that. And on the surface, it might seem a little selfish or rude or even uncaring that why wouldn't the guys who have some not give it to some of the guys who don't, or the ladies in this case. 
but it's not at all selfish. And here's why. Because you can't give someone the Spirit of God. You can't give someone the Spirit of God. You can't give them the grace of God that he's been giving to you. Caleb can't give me his grace. He can't give me the Spirit of God that he has. You can't give it. Salvation is not transferable or handed down. There's no rub off when it comes to holiness. Right? You see, no Christian, dead or alive, can give you what you need to be saved. We can tell you who can save you. We can point you to him, but nobody can give it to you. Nobody can save you. Your godly mother or father or grandparent cannot give you their oil. They cannot make you alive by the power of the Spirit. They can't do it. They could teach you. Caleb said in the beginning, the kids are going out. What joy it is that my children walk in the truth. Yes. Right? Yes, we teach them in the way they should go. We can't save them. We pray like crazy for them. We train them up. We teach them. We direct them. We counsel them. But we can't save them. Your mother may have birthed you into this world, but she cannot rebirth you into the kingdom of God. Can't do it. You're on your own. It's between you and God. And the only place to get this oil is from him. And without this oil or the spirit of God, there is no power over the penalty of sin and thus no forgiveness for sin. And therefore, there is, there is no reality to your Christian profession if you don't have the spirit of God. And if you don't have the spirit of God, that means that your profession is a sham and this is the great warning of the parable. This is the great warning of the parable. You may look like you have oil to others, as Judas did to the 11, and sadly be totally void of it in the end and suffer eternally for it. And by Jesus' calculations, there are countless people in churches today who are in this condition. They have mistaken feelings or emotions or labor, or commitment, or just lineage for the, present, the presence of the Spirit of God in their lives. Uh, and they are greatly deceived. They've been greatly deceived uh, and have a false assurance that they are destined for heaven. But sadly, that isn't the case, as we will see in our last point. And the last point is the destiny of the virgins, verses 10 to 13. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. All right? Jesus says the bridegroom came, and the five wise virgins came out to meet him, and they, they went into the wedding feast with him. And once they went in, the door was closed. And once the door was closed, nobody else could come in. The feast had started, and only those who were ready and prepared for it went into it. And the door being shut represents the angels gathering Jesus' elect to him from the four winds, if you will, of heaven. And it's similar to the door being shut in Noah's ark uh, when he and his family entered into it. And everybody outside of it was brought to judgment and perished in the flood. So once the door is shut... Uh, it is never to be opened again. No one else can enter it. Uh, and the foolish virgins are panicked and mortified, and they cry out, Lord, Lord, open to us. It's like saying, hey, we're the bridesmaids. We're, we're in the wedding party. 
We've been waiting for you all forever. We got so tired we even fell asleep. Don't you know that we're Christians and we've believed in you? Don't you know that? So open it up. Let us in. Open the door into eternal glory. And Jesus will say those crushing, heart-stabbing words, assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Not that I don't know who you are. I have no relationship with you, and I never have. He says, you think you know me, but you don't know me. You say you know me, and outwardly it looks like you know me to everybody else, but you don't know me, and you have never known me. And that's because I have never known you. And that's because you were never one of my sheep. You never forsook everything and followed me. You never loved me more than father, mother, sister, brother, and everyone else. You cared more about your family and your hobbies and your job and your possessions and your schedule and your pleasures than you did about me. You threw me scraps when I told you I wanted everything. I wanted your life to be a living sacrifice to me, but you were unwilling And ultimately, I never had the throne of your heart. You always had other things in there other than me. You never suffered for my name's sake. You never humbled yourself before me and said, your will be done, not my will. So who are you kidding? I don't know you. I've never known you. I only know those who are mine. And the evidence that they are mine is that they live for me. That's the evidence. Obedience is evidence. Love is evidence. Psalm 1.6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Nahum 1.7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. He knows. 1 Corinthians 8.3, But if anyone loves God, this one is known of him. 2 Timothy 2.19, The Lord knows those who are his. The point is, the Lord sees way past the outward things and zeroes in on the heart, and he knows who the Spirit lives in. He knows. So when you die, or if he comes back and you're still standing, and you are not born again, the door of mercy and grace will be closed. The door of faith and forgiveness will be closed. The day of salvation, it'll be gone. It'll be gone forever. And I tell you the truth. There are two churches that meet here at Gateway Church. There are two churches that meet at every church. It's just how it is. It's what Jesus says. One with those who have reservations for the wedding feast or those who have oil in their vessels and one for those who don't. And sadly, sadly, maybe sitting here today, even tonight, there are some who who don't have oil in their lamp, right? Who, 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 Who are convinced that they have an invitation and oil, but they don't have either. And when Jesus comes again, that door's gonna be shut to you if that's you. While there are others sitting here who genuinely have genuinely come to Christ and faithfully live for him, and you will be ushered into the wedding feast on that day. And when you get inside, the door's gonna be shut. 
It's going to be closed. And, and you will be forever separated from sin and Satan and this world and pain and suffering and hardship. All of those things are going to be left outside the door. None of that stuff can enter the banquet. Amen to that, right? And all you will forever know is pure blessedness and brilliant glory of being in the presence of the glorious Christ. You will have your reward. Your reward is Christ, and you'll be with him. Judgment cannot touch you because there is no judgment for those at the feast. And that's because the bridegroom has already paid and suffered for your judgment at the cross. And what captivated the hearts of the believers on earth and in this life will be theirs in all its fullness forevermore with Christ. They lived for Jesus. He was their life. And now it is their great gain to be in the presence of him. Right? Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die? Well, that's better gain. And nothing can come in from the outside and hinder it. Nothing. But those on the outside will quick, quickly come to realize they believe the lie. They believe the lie. They will then know that they never truly repented. They will then know they were never truly saved. They will then understand the seriousness of sin. And sadly, they will come to understand the judgment of it as well. Right? This is why we're told in 2 Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure. I know I'm saved. Uh, my, my, I, I grew up in a Christian home. Make your calling and election sure. I, I know I'm saved because the pastor prayed over me and I cried and I was weeping. Make your calling and election sure. It's not about a moment. It's about a life, right? Is your life exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Is Christ your Lord? Does he have the top slot of the heart? Because if he doesn't, there's a problem. This is why we're told in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves, right? Do a spiritual checkup. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So it behooves us to do a spiritual checkup on ourselves and to make sure we haven't deceived ourselves. And what a great mercy and what a kindness it is for the Lord to give us this parable. He didn't have to give us this to show us what he's already said in Matthew 13, but he's hammering it home here, is not everyone that looks like they're real is real. And it really doesn't get figured out until the end. But boy, you don't want to wait till that point, right? So he says again, make sure you're the real deal. Because the kingdom of God on earth is mixed together with believers and unbelievers. Or those who have oil in their vessels and those who don't. And... and and by God's word today, we have been warned and challenged to follow the example of the wise virgins and to make sure we have oil and to watch and be ready because we don't know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. I'd like to close by saying this is a really super serious warning. And that's because uh, if you are deceived and mistaken, uh, you'll suffer for it forever. There are no second chances here. Right? Uh, if, if you leave this world deceived and mistaken, that's it. Uh, and I know the easiest thing to do, and maybe you're doing it right now, is thinking 
in your, in your mind about somebody else, somebody in this room you have doubts about or in this church. Uh, and, and maybe you're saying to yourself, well, I sure hope so-and-so really searches their heart because maybe they're not the real deal. Well, don't do that. Don't worry about anybody else in this room at this point. Worry about yourself. I got to worry about myself. Worry about yourself. Right? And let so-and-so worry about themselves. You see, you need to examine your life and I need to examine my life because the last thing any of us wants is to hear those words that'll echo through all eternity. I never knew you. And if you don't, you don't really see a Christ-like life and have a Christ-filled passion, then something may be terribly wrong. And I would urge you, do not hesitate or procrastinate to run to Christ and confess your hypocrisy to him and confess your love for the world and everything that, that you have made an idol over him and turn from those things and cling to Christ alone. Set your heart upon him, even now for the first time, and follow him and find your satisfaction in him. Oh, that God would save people who think they are saved but aren't. Oh, that God would save people who know they aren't saved. And for those who genuinely know him this day, take comfort because your bridegroom is coming for you. And when he comes, it'll be the banquet to end all banquets. And it's not going to be a seven-day celebration. No, it'll be a forever celebration because time will be done and you will be with the lover of your soul forever. So, dear Christian, take heart, keep walking the walk. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for even the sober and hard warnings in the scriptures. Uh, Lord, the last thing we want is to uh, Lord, play church or play Christianity. Lord, we want to know you. We want to love you. We want to serve you. We want to spend and be spent for the sake of souls. We want Christ to be exalted in our lives. We are weak and frail and we struggle. Oh God, please encourage us if we're saved. Strengthen us in our walks. Grant us a greater fervor for you. Uh, and, and Father, if there are souls here today that uh, have been deceiving themselves, Lord, would you reveal that? Would you in your mercy reveal that? Strike the heart even for the first time and bring them into your, your kingdom, take them from darkness to light, that they would know what it really means to, to be known and to know you. Lord, would you do that for your glory's sake? In Jesus' name, amen.